You're listening to The Bizarro Files, a Scarlet Rhapsody podcast. Welcome back to The Bizarro Files, episode 15. We promise we're getting these out more often. I've been wrapped up in crazy work-related things, but hey, we're back. We're watching movies. We're talking about nerdy stuff, and this time, a different kind of nerdy stuff. Well, we normally do something that's sci-fi or comic book-related, today we're actually covering the unsung nerddom that is nerdier than all the rest, musical theater. Well, not musical theater specifically. We're talking about a movie remake of a musical theater uh, smash hit uh, called Jersey Boys. And to talk about this, we have our resident theater expert, Miss Scarlett, because she is the crazy theater person with tons of programs and theater posters and uh, uh, just trees worth of playbills and other sorts of... Uh, broad, Broadway, we Broadway stuffs, I guess. Yeah, we even have a section on our site called Singing Through Life that goes through uh, Broadway stuff. I'm um, usually in the Broadway community. I'm known as Ari Kagami. Um, my Tumblr, I usually do Broadway memes on my um, Broadway meme Tumblr, saysworeila.tumblr.com, which is also a Jersey Boys reference, which we, what is what we will be covering today. Um, we saw the movie last night. Um, at the Boston Commons uh, Theater, the AMC. Um, I happened to have um, some credit on my uh, AMC Stubbs card. I was like, hey, I, we could go gra- catch a movie. Um, I had like a $15 gift card. Like, yeah, I'll cover for like one of us. <laughs> it was funny too because I actually did see Jersey Boys in Boston. In fact, the last time I saw it was in Boston, February, right after we had a snowstorm. And. <clears throat> I just want to, I want to say like the theater that I saw it in was like right across the street from the movie theater where we saw it and so that was really interesting. Huh. Uh, for those who don't know, the movie and play it's basically a biopic about uh, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. Kind of going through their origins of getting the band together, their rise to stardom, how everything goes to hell and how they come, well, Frankie and Bob Gaudio come out pretty well at the end. Yeah, I've seen a musical a couple times on, well, in a lot of different places. L.A., Vegas, Broadway, Boston, Chicago, um, the O.C., San Francisco. So Obsessive I, much? It's, it's that great of a show. I mean, one of the things I do like about this musical that you don't really get with like a lot of a lot of musicals, as I feel, is because it's so focused on these four characters, the four members of the band. I feel like when I watch the play, um, each actor has like an different interpretation in how they play the character, which is one of the reasons why I keep going back. And I also feel that 
not only I feel it's it's a jukebox musical, I really don't like using that word to describe this play because I feel it's not a jukebox musical. It, it is and it isn't. It is under the definition of a musical based on pre-existing music. It isn't because this isn't like some random dude named Joe who's in love with a girl named Sherry and then they somehow make a crappy plot about Joe trying to date Sherry. Like they did for basically uh, We Will Rock You, um, um, Hollywood, Raw, what the hell is it called? Rock of Ages. Um, and what was the other one that, that basically had that same exact crap plot? The ABBA one was basically Mama that Mia, But Mamma Mia was like stupid fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, because so was ABBA. Every, everybody loves ABBA. Even if you don't love ABBA, you actually love ABBA. You just don't know There was a ABBA. period of time on Broadway leading up to Jersey Boys where the, you would get all these jukebox musicals. And a lot of them... Just listed off three. Yeah. And a lot of them were just completely forgettable. Well, yeah, because there's no context between the songs. Um, if you had, like, say, if someone did a Pink Floyd musical based on The Wall, at least The Wall actually has a storyline. You know, so that would produce something different, though it'd be a freaking drugged out play. But you rarely get the plays based off of, like, an actual album as a story. I think, um, uh, was it Tommy is actually based off an album as a story as well. Yes, that is correct. So, and also American Idiot. Yeah, is based on an album that has a story. So when you have those things, those are, those are a different animal. But when you just say, hey, here's a bunch of random songs by... Uh, Neil Diamond, now let's make a pl- musical out of it. Well, then that's going to suck. Not just because it's Neil Diamond. Again, back to my point, like, one of the reasons why I just keep going back is it just almost feels like a concert. Like, you're just, you just go back in time and you see these, um, these four actors and they're performing the songs as if they were performing as the, as the, their counterparts on stage. Like, there's this moment where you have, like, the, where they do Sherry, um, big girls don't cry. Walk like a man. Dawn like all in a row, and, and it feels like you're outside of that. You're not exactly watching a musical. You're actually watching the actual four seasons right there. Because it's structured like a documentary, so it even has the parts where the characters kind of split off from what's going on to basically do kind of the confessional booth kind of thing, or or an interview basically uh, from a documentary to basically explain. While this is going on, let me explain some more context about what's happening. You see this, this, and this. And then it cuts to them, you know, oh, then we performed at Ed Sullivan. Then we were at the state fair. Then we were at, you know, it goes through all the different locations, like what you would have concert footage from. Although because of how, uh, when they were performing, not probably not a lot of footage remains of them, which is unfortunate. I'd actually be curious to see some of their old uh, performances. But... They just didn't record everything as much as they do now. And the stuff they did record, after a certain point, they just junk. Because, like, well, why would we need this Four Seasons footage from the Ed Sullivan show from 20 years ago? Um, it's, and it's sad that they do that, because there's probably a lot of amazing performances that have been recorded that just are gone. It, it's like how what we have from Woodstock is a handful of people who had, like, tape recorders. You know? <laughs> there's there's yeah, not, like... the Woodstock movie. And the Woodstock, yeah, the, the documentary if it's a really crappy audio editing. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not like we had super high definition audio recordings of Woodstock. I mean, if you, as much as I love uh, Jimi Hendrix's rendition of our national anthem, it sounds god-awful because of how it was recorded. But anyways, getting back to the Jersey Boys and Frankie Valley to Four Seasons, um, Jared, have you seen the show? Um, I know I've 
seen it a couple times, you've dragged me to it. Uh, honestly, of all musicals, this is in that category of ones I actually can't complain about going to see. It's just like if someone's like, hey, let's go see West Side Story. I'm like, okay, I'll go see West Side Story. Um, I have certain musicals I actually do enjoy, but whenever it comes to modern ones, I always grind my teeth before having to see them because... And I don't, and I know this sounds dismissive or sounds jerky or whatever. A lot of modern musicals kind of suck, um, or they're just so derivative that I can't take them seriously. And when I'm told, "Oh, this is a jukebox musical about Frankie Valley," I go, "Are you kidding me?" But then I'm like, "Oh, it's it's the life story, and then the music isn't like inappropriately shoved in or shoehorned. The music is, hey, this was our hit. This is kind of how we came up with with the lyrics, or." Hey, here's another one of our hits, but we're just going to make this tie into an event in our lives, not in some shoehorn way. Like, it's not like Bob Gaudio was dating some girl named Don. It was, we're going to sing Don, and then, well, then when we get off stage, drama happens. You know, but everything felt, you know, kind of um, in that style. That The songs were in context to them performing, and then events leading up to the said performance or events after said performance is where the drama comes in. But it was never done in any sort of, you know, shoehorned way. And you can you get the stories of them struggling to try to get some of these songs on. You know, they have a specific sequence that's really kind of uh, very important to both the play and the movie, where uh, Bob and uh, Frankie are just dying to get this one song on the radio. They're like, "This song is amazing. Everyone's gonna love it." Why won't anyone play this? Why can't we get it on a record? Why is everyone hating on this song? And because the song is a, a genre, a genre-defying song, and they literally get told that too. They're just like, "Oh, it's it's too hard to be soft music. It's too soft to be hard music. It's it's you know, it's a love song, but it's also like a kind of a dance song, but it's not a dance song. But and it just confused dumb people." But the audience loved it. Again, it's a great song, and I'm not going to spoil what song it is, because I think that's part of the fun of, of seeing that for the first time. And, and you know, and the, 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 just the general struggles of being a band and the drama that can occur between the members. And these guys had a lot of drama. And, and it works. It really does. And so that's, you know, kind of how I felt about the play. And when I heard they were going to make a movie of it, I instantly go to, oh, crap. Because that's the first thing... I, Especially in the modern day. You know, John Revolt for Roism, or was supposed to direct a movie, right? That would actually be awesome. Okay. Uh, I would have actually been in for that. But here's my thing. Is for every Chicago, we have like three Phantom of the Operas. You know, for, for every one deep, decent or good movie musical, uh, especially based off of stage material, we always get like three or four really crappy ones. So when I hear they're going to put this on, I'm like, oh, crap. Are they going to, like, completely change it? Are they going to take out the music? Are they going to, you know, completely rewrite the dialogue? And also my concern was I've noticed, like, in a lot of movie musicals based off Broadway plays, they tend to cast, like, A-list celebrities on there. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, like, Anne Hathaway, Hugh Jackman, Ken Singh, and they actually had professional training in that field. But I'm thinking of movies like Mamma Mia, Pierce Brosnan. I, okay, even though that was like awesomely bad. It was so cheap. I mean, like, even though that it's awesomely bad, like, no, you need like four committed guys well, yeah. to this. And that was my issue is that are they going to stunt cast this? Are we suddenly going to get just like 
you know, we can get the dudes from The Hangover to play the Jersey Boys because they're popular. You know, we get uh, Zach Galifianakis as Bob Gaudio. Is that going to happen? You know, I, I was afraid of stuff like that. And and even like Chicago for is visually appealing and as well done as it is. It's not it's far from perfect, um, though. I, I got to admit, I do kind of like Catherine Zeta, Catherine Zeta Jones in her role. And um, God, who was the lead? Was that a was- one? Um, no, it no, was... No, it wasn't Alec Baldwin. Okay. It was, it was Richard Gere. Yes, R- Richard Gere. Richard Gere was surprisingly good in that. I did not expect that. But I, I don't know a lot of Richard Gere, Gere's uh, performance background beyond a handful of movies that I really like. So, uh, But I was generally afraid that they were going to go that direction. And like, oh, well, here's the boys from One Direction as the Jersey Boys, you know? No. And, and I would be like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Because I had a feeling, okay, maybe they'll cast American Idol people to be in Jersey Boys. Yeah. But I'm like, okay, I, at least I'd be okay with that. Because at least, okay, at least they can sing, but can they act? So it's kind of like... I saw from Justin from from Justin to Kelly. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that movie. They can't... I did not see that movie, folks. I, however... I'm actually a heterosexual white male. So however, Jennifer Hudson that. actually um, actually won an Academy Award when For she did Dreamgirls. Dream yeah. So you also have that end of it. So it's like a gamble when you yeah. like cast like these tweens. I don't know. Ruben Stutter as Tommy DeVito. I can see it. Ruben Stutter, I think, is a big black man. I'm not 100% certain on that. I've never watched American Idol. Oh, no, wait, I watched episodes of Excited, a friend who liked American Idol for God knows what reason. So, uh, I don't know, I watched, let's say season 12, I will hypothetically say. Um, I watched some season, some point in the early 2000s, and I was like, why am I watching this crap? And my friend was like, because you're at my house. And actually, um, now that I remember remember it, um, there's actually been American Idol alums that actually have done stage, like, one... Cowboy guy. Cowboy guy? Clay Aiken? Oh yeah, he was in Spamalot and Fantasia yeah. Burrito. She was on. She's currently on um, the the one jazz one about and that one, one jazz girl. And the one went off to Rock of Ages as well. Yeah, Constantine Mara Louise went to Rock of Ages. Diane Garmo did Hairspray, and Fantasia Burrito. She's been. I think she's done Color Purple, and the one. Probably that's, unfair for me to refer to Clay Aiken as the cowboy guy, but he's like Southern and he has the like Texas draw. And I don't know if he's from Texas, but his draw is very Texas-ash. I mean, he could also be uh, Mississippian or possibly even Alabaman. Because mm-hmm. I think they all have a very... They have a more similar style of accent, the, the really slow-talking accent. I thought he was Texan, though. And so, yeah, sorry about that if that seems, like, racist against, like, Texans to call them cowboy guys. But, like, cowboy guys. <laughs> but then when they announced, announced that they were going to use... Um, this- some of the stage actors for the movie, I was like, okay, I can I can roll with this. Um, I've actually seen three out of the four seasons live. I actually did find out today that I actually did see uh, Michael Lamenda in Boston, and I didn't know it was him. I had to go through my old playbill. I was like, oh, wait, I did see him in Boston. Like, dang, I forgot about that. And then Eric Bergen, who both of us saw in Vegas and met after a show. Really cool guy. If you ever had to have a chance to meet him, really down to earth. Very energetic. Mm-hmm. Very enthusiastic, not even energetic song word, enthusiastic is the right word. <laughs> Youthful exuberance, although he's older than me, I think. Um, I think he's younger. Just gonna crawl into my hole. But yeah, Eric Bergen um, cast as Bob Gaudio. I had the fortune of seeing him twice, once in Orange County and then in Vegas. And he played Bob both those times, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
ever since I see I saw him the Orange County production, I was like, okay, this guy's my favorite Bob Gotti. He's got his youthfulness down, he's got his energy down, and he also can play the ego part um, very well, but very subtle. Yeah. And then they they ended up casting the original Frankie Valley, John Lloyd Young, as Frankie Valley, and we actually did run into him at GFK one time. Cool. But I actually did see, meet him a couple of times prior to that. The first time being at the Hollywood Bowl when he did Les Mis. He was playing Marius, and I actually did really like him as Marius. Decent choice for him, yeah. Mm -hmm. Good see that. And at least when I saw him as Marius, he showed like another side of his voice. He had this really nice classically trained voice for the role, different from Frankie Valli, who's singing all these oldies pop songs. In a higher register. Mm -hmm. But... And then, uh, do, 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 do. and then the next time I ran into him was at the Upright Cabaret, and I was just going through just some weirdness in my life back, uh, back then. But um, long story short, um, he was doing he was uh, being featured on with this one actress's cabaret, and he actually did like uh, he actually did sing "Can't Take My Eyes Off of You," and it was nice to meet him and just have some chit chat and some wine, and I thought that was a really cool performance but so i've actually met some of the people on this mm -hmm. <laughs> that that that's like involved in the movie and i wish we could say we've met christopher walken because that, that would awesome. be an awesome moment <laughs> like just run into him at new york comic cons like hey who's that grandpa right there i, I just want to start saying that like i did meet him at the la times festival of books reading to children and like people would be like, wait, that was a Simpsons joke. I'm like it was, and it was voiced by Jay Moore because Jay Moore does a pretty rock on uh, Christopher Walken impression. Uh, but yeah, and, and then the uh, the last member of the band, uh, the guy who played Tommy DeVito, was a dude from Boardwalk Empire, which is a pretty awesome show. I, I do recommend it. I've only seen it. season one, but it's a fun show. Uh, you know, fun show about like dirty sleazy people and like. <laughs> And then, yeah, when I heard about it, like, yeah, I, I've never seen Boardwalk Empire, but I've heard great things about it. Like, well, if they got someone from this type of show to play Tommy DeVito, he should it's be a, able to pull choice. off yeah. the rough and tumble side. And, okay, now let's just go into the movie itself. All right, so, Jerry, what were your impressions of the Jersey Boys movies, movie? I think overall, and I, ha I hate to end with, like, the final verdict kind of thing, but overall they did a very good job of bringing it over. Uh, they didn't. They they added a little dialogue here and there. They removed a few lines that I really liked from the stage stuff, but they didn't change the story. They didn't. They even kept it where the point of view would shift through each of the four uh, main characters as the story progressed. You know, they, they kept that. They they expanded a few things, like having uh, like actually showing Frankie at the barber shop. Which is really weird that they always say hairdresser because I'm like he was training to be a barber because that's a barber shop but whatever hairdresser does sound more emasculating which I guess would make more sense but barber is the proper term for that anyhow uh, they show a little stuff like that it's nice to be able to get some of the the close-ups the, the little visual things they can do in a movie that they can't do on stage like where they're celebrating their first three big number one hits and they have the little cake with the little stars on it and stuff and. Uh, you know, they can do that. They have a little sequence where instead of having a character explain how they got the inspiration for the song, it actually shows them basically acting out what the guy, what the character explains because they can visually do that. And that's for the story of uh, the creation of um, um, Big Girls Don't Cry, where in the, the play version, Bob Gaudio is explaining that he's watching one of these million-dollar movies and 
some B actress, I can't remember which actress he names it, it's, it's basically a, a popular B-rank actress from the time, gets slapped in the face and says the line, big girls don't cry, and in the, and in the movie they're watching a, uh, um, a Kurt Douglas, uh, looked like a cowboy movie? Um, and then whoever the actress was gets slapped in the face and it's like, oh, look at this. And Tommy makes some comment like, this girl's going to cry now. And then Bob Gaudio goes, hey, big girls don't cry. And then, you know, that, that's kind of how they do it that way. And I, I think it works to be able to do those visual things rather than just having crap explained to you all the time. Uh, same thing with the origin of uh, the song Sherry. It just kind of, instead of Bob basically explaining stuff, though I felt with a voiceover, they could have easily just added that voiceover to that sequence. It just shows him like tapping and like kind of humming to himself, and then he like oh my god and like runs off to go uh, work on the song, and then it continues on to where the play continued on where he he runs in and he's like guys 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 this is our hit, um, so it's it's definitely one of those things where you know there's things they can do that I, I do like I do like those visual things that don't quite work as well on stage. But there's so many good one-liners that they they took out that I'm like, oh, come on, you could have used that line. There's, there's even a sequence uh, during their early times of like their experimentation where they're going under different names and different gimmicks because that's Tommy DeVito's deal. Let's find whatever's popular and do that. And there's a part where they try to do a comedy kind of aspect to it, and they have a dude who puts on a gorilla mask and sings about how he's going ape. Um... Which is, is fun for two reasons. One, the really stupid gorilla mask thing. And two, because of the description of being the low point where they were playing for a Mexican, or two Mexicans, and a guy with no nose. Which is how I've described the audience for several of my panels at cons where people don't go to the panels. Cough, cough, insert name of con. You guys all know I would, I would bash on, but we're not talking about conventions on this podcast. That's Zero Hour, which you can check out on Scarlet Rhapsody and on iTunes. Indeed. So, I think they did a good job. I think casting-wise, the the main four were very, very well cast. Helps when you have three guys from the stage. Christopher Walken as the mobster dude was freaking awesome. I mean, it's still Christopher Walken playing Christopher Walken, it, but it is. But it, like, it's Christopher Walken as like this mob boss, and just the way how he delivers like some of his lines is very Christopher Walken esque. Uh, but it still doesn't take away from the movie either honestly one of his best moments isn't even dialogue it's his reaction to a song that frankie valley is singing <laughs> and i freaking love his over-the-top reaction to it <laughs> but he also gets a, a one-liner they added to the movie which was uh and you stay out of my bathroom no he actually no he that was actually said in the, in the original show is it really yeah it's really but that. the way he said it was they out of my bathroom mm -hmm. because like he because like in in the shows that i've seen um jip to carlo the mob boss is pretty much like you stay out of the bathroom more commanding and more like hey you stay out of the bathroom but the way how uh how christopher walken says just very awkward and very christopher walken it's like he, you he says stay it out of the bathroom the line was like just told to him mm -hmm. as he's like walking out the room he's like and stay out of the bathroom. And uh, you stay out of the bathroom. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. she like walks out. And you're like, <laughs> and, like it kind of worked more like as as uh, for humorous than. And the line is a humorous line, but when a guy's saying it like, "And you stay out of the bathroom," it's a different, you know, feel to it than yeah, you know, Christopher Walken did. But he he was 
not super over the top because his character really didn't allow for that, but he just had some really great Christopher Walken moments. Yeah, this is a, like when one of those uh, Christopher Walken movies were worth watching too. Even though he plays a secondary character, like he's also worth it just to like just check out they, the movie. They too. even give him more screen time than the character had in the original stage thing. Because I feel like you also have to make that connection between um, between the guys and the mob because that was was their world at the t at the time. Yeah, they they have a line in the beginning that basically says the only ways out of uh, Jersey is to either join the military where you get a chance of being killed, uh, join join the mob where you have a chance of being killed, or become a star. Um, and so I, I kind of like that as, a, as just this way of pointing out, like, 1950s Jersey, probably not the best place in the world. I also like how the movie was filmed, too, because it looked, because it didn't look like it was, like, HD, HD in the sense, like, I'm so used to, like, watching, like, a lot of modern movies. Like, even Hairspray, that took place in the 60s. Um, too clean. Yeah, it, it just yeah, like it ha had like that clean kind of HD feeling to it. But when you're watching this, it feels like you're watching it through an Instagram filter. I don't mean it mean that that in a in a bad way, but it's like you're watching something from that time period. Yeah, they made it look everything looked authentic that time period. And when they're walking around, uh, uh, shoot, I can't remember the name of the Jersey town they're in. They're in the Belleville. Belleville, yeah. Well, they're walking around the Belleville, which I'm fairly certain was probably ninety percent LA. Um, it, it does have kind of a grimy, older feel to it. It doesn't look like it's pristine, nice Hollywood lot. It looks like, yeah, that's a 1950s street that wasn't kept particularly well. Yeah, and even when you go into um, Frankie's house, on that where his, he and his wife live, it's like, okay, that's, that's the house. <laughs> It is a, it's one of those cramped kind of East Coast houses. Mm -hmm. And also you get to see the projects where Frankie and his family grew up too because I know that they allude a lot to it in the play, but you never really get to see it. Because they can't really drop a background just for that little True. section of it. And I really did like the beginning because like the beginning part of Jersey Boys is also one of my favorite parts of the story because you get to see them like just go through all these trials and through all these... Um, just like they're, they're like shenanigans to get to where they need to be. Yeah. And I also like the um, added, they actually ex expanded on this and kind of like made it, made it for the movie where in the original play, like the show opens with um, Tommy and his band singing silhouettes just as an intro thing. That can only work on stage. But the way they did in here is Frankie sings silhouettes literally under a street lamp and he was singing it so bad. <laughs> yeah, they, they actually gave you an arc to uh, to Frankie actually developing a skill. Like, you could tell he had some talent, but he didn't have the practice. And, yeah, instead of just them kind of, you know, Tommy basically narrating, like, yeah, it was just four guys under a street lamp singing someone else's songs, I believe this original line, they kind of take that out to kind of establish kind of what Jersey's like, showing young Frankie, showing how grimy it is. And they take two scenes. They take the scene where they're trying to rob a jewelry store, I believe. Yeah. They take the scene where they're going to rob a jewelry store and kind of expand on it and use that as an excuse for Frankie Valley to sing as their kind of uh, warning that the police are hanging out around that area or a police officer is passing by. Mm -hmm. And I thought that worked. It was, it was different than the, the stage, but it actually allowed for a song there with a reason other than just a character saying, hey, we were just kids under a street lamp singing songs. It's a kid on the street. I'm singing a song for a reason, 
and had a very fun follow-up with uh, one of the people then saying, hey, kid, shut up. And I was like, okay. Because I just like looking at the, just how they did like the various clubs they played at. I like the bowling alley scenes, but the only nitpick I really have is the bowling alley scene because I didn't think they, because when you find out who the person Timing DeVito is working with in the bowling alley, it hits you hard in in the play. But here, like, if you're not hearing it, if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss it. Yeah, and it it's a very interesting, fun fact. And in the movie, they just seem to kind of gloss over it, and that's kind of unfortunate. Although the actor who played that character is spot on for what I imagine a younger version of that uh, actor to actually be like. Because I'm so used to seeing him plays because the actor who usually takes on this role is the Frankie Valley understudy or the Frankie Valley alternate. And I'm just so used to seeing just being like just so young looking, so annoying looking. It reminds me of Joey from Pokemon. <laughs> just it's annoying. Well, he's meant he's this kind of this bratty kid. And while the actor looked not to be all that much younger than uh, Tommy DeVito, I think in the context of the story, he's only supposed to, I think he's supposed to be like a teenager or something while Tommy DeVito is like in maybe his earlier mid-20s. I think there's supposed to be like this five-plus-year gap between the two of them. And that's why he's such like this obnoxious, you know, teenager who's like, guys, I want to help you. I want to like help get people, you know, a guy to your band. I know this guy. He's he wrote short shorts. You know short shorts? Yeah, I know the guy who wrote that. He <laughs> wrote short shorts. And that's the other thing I like this movie: the way they um, placed the music. In Jersey Boys, it's a full blown musical, but it does have like times where you have dialogue, you have conversations between characters, but at the same time, I. F- the way how they did like the music for this movie, I have a hard time calling this movie a musical because it really isn't. Yeah. It's based off a Broadway show, but when the you, because for example, in the musical when you see short shorts on stage, it's just a bunch of teens like just dancing to short shorts, like yeah, dance craze, short shorts, yeah, yeah. And then in the bowling alley, you hear short shorts on the jukebox. And then, um, Which works a lot better, because then it ties into... Yeah, I know this guy. I know who wrote this song. Yeah, he'll be perfect for your band. Uh, the one thing they did kind of change a little bit, I believe, is uh, when Bob Gaudio, who apparently is the guy who wrote Short Shorts at like the age of 15, um, they changed his little monologue thing. Because in his original... Uh, Broadway one, he does a whole thing like, I wrote short shorts when I was 15, I went on tour through all the state fairs alongside he names like two or three other big names from that time period. He's like, but when I, but no one has a voice like Frankie Valli and they kind of changed it to like I saw these guys, they were all below me and then I heard Frankie's voice and I knew I have to write songs for this guy. And now that I have to write songs for this guy is a line from it, but he cut out the whole you know, basically he was a teenage star who had to slum with some some other guys from New Jersey because he was a one-hit wonder and kind of needed, not even need to, but would like to go and, you know, get back into the game. And they kind of glossed over the fact that he was a one-hit wonder to just kind of move on to him kind of handing them, like, some raggedy pieces of paper that he scribbled some basic music on for, uh... God, what's the song for that scene? It's, um... What's the song they... Oh, Cry For Me. Yeah, so they can all just kind of do a a quick little rendition of Cry For Me as his audition for the group. 
which does have the fun thing of like the girls hitting on him afterwards and Tommy just horribly cock blocking him <laughs> because Tommy's a dick. Yeah, I also um, noticed that they had to like change up and cut some songs for the sake of pacing. Well, there's things that like they don't need to have them all. I, that sequence where they're background singers, they did I think two. Yeah, different the, ones as opposed to I think it's four or five. Yeah, um, they did two 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 um, backup sessions in the movie and like in the play, it's about four four of um, four sequences and you can actually hear one of them as they're going into the Brill Building. Oh, I didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and there's some of the other songs that just from the beginning where they're just uh, covering other popular songs at the time. They cut a lot of those out as well. I mean, you hear them, like, sing- singing them, like, just, like, maybe the title of it. Like, when Tommy is trying to, like, um, charm Frankie's mother, he goes into, like, the first lines of Earth Angel, but that's just about it. But in the play, he sings, like, a whole chorus of it. And not under that, uh, not to charm Frankie's mother either. I think that's just one of their random things they're singing under the street lamp or whatever in the beginning. It's more like, it was like during the scene where like Tranky's mother is like, like, hey, um, I want him home by 11. You take care of him and stay out of trouble. Yeah. And then Tommy's like, don't worry, Earth Angel, Earth Angel. Okay, so it wasn't during that. It was during that scene. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh, in here, it was like during the court scene where, where like, like, yeah, he's my friend and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, where uh, Frankie's getting his warning and uh, Tommy's heading off, gonna get head off to jail. And yeah, he does a little. He just says, like, the first... I think it's just like, oh, Earth Angel, and then just, like, walks off. I really like Vincent Piazza's portrayal of Tommy and DeVito. I'm mixed on it, mm-hmm. because uh, in the play, and, and even in the movie, Tommy and DeVito makes reference to the fact that, you know, he did what he had to do, and he thought he was a good guy, and he thought that what he did was right, even though he made some mistakes. And I feel in the movie, he's played as much more of a jerk... Um, but he's just an outright asshole for the most part of that movie. And it's not, like, even when he's, like, giving people a hard time, it's not, doesn't seem like it's played for fun. It feels like it's just more malicious. Um, while in most of the stage versions I've seen, they usually play it up like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm just having fun with you. I'm just messing with you. You know, there's there's the part where he's explaining how women work to uh, Frankie and, and teasing him about, you know, you can drive my car. And in the play version, it's, it's, you can tell it's like a kind of a big brother, little brother, I'm kind of messing with you a little bit, versus in this movie where it just seemed like he was just being a jerk about it. But then he also let him borrow the car and stuff. So, you know, the, the context is still there, but the performance, you know, I don't feel that you could make an argument for Tommy DeVito being a good guy in this movie versus on stage where you can see that a bit more. Where they felt more like they were kind of brothers, and unfortunately, brothers don't always get along. But it, it, the camaraderie was there. It was just like he was just the, he was the jerk of the group, and everyone just kind of like shrugged and dealt with it. Like uh, what's his face from the Archie comics, um, Reggie. Reggie, yeah. But Reggie's just a jerk, and everyone just deals with it for some reason. <laughs> like. There's no reason they should be friends with also, Reggie. They just deal with it. Because I, I do, like, remember in, like, the play, um, to, like, towards the end where, like, 
when it's when it's like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like Tom was like, yeah, like it'll be good times. Like we're having a room party. Um, here here's a room number kind of thing. But then I think Bob and Frankie made made an illusion. It's like, yeah, I don't think we went up to that party that night. Kind of like just showing, like, yeah, there was still some contempt there. Yeah. And then like when um in the movie where like he and Frankie like see each other again after all these years, like yeah they. Do a handshake, but you can still... Handshake s- into the hugging it out. Mm-hmm. But you can still see, like, okay, let's just get this over with kind of thing. Well, you can tell that, like, it lo- you know, the way he played Tommy in that scene is, is he seems fairly grateful and, like, hey, I missed you, man. And Frankie clearly has this look on his face like, oh, God, I can't believe I have to do this because there's, like, a hundred people taking photos of us right now. And if I, like, push you away... It, that the only headline for her tomorrow is going to be uh, Frankie Valley jerk to former bandmate mm-hmm. versus, okay, I'll just deal with this. And it looks like we're kind of making amends, sort of, even though, no, we're totally not. You, all the hell you put me through, bridges have been burned. Like, let's just get this performance over with and move on with life. And I'm fairly certain that's probably the way it was historically. I think if you had to deal with, especially when it gets revealed, like, how in the trouble there's there's a trouble that uh tommy gets into with the mafia that basically if i had if i had done what frankie had done which i don't think i would have i think i would have gone on the bob gaudio route on on that uh decision um i think who i think that friend is just kind of it's done it's it's done you just go off do your own shit leave me alone never talk to me again um, so, so the animosity thing makes perfect sense, and well, I mean, clearly uh, throughout the entire both the play and the movie version, regardless of how Tommy DeVito is played, you can tell that Bob and, and Tom never got along. Like that just didn't happen. Like Bob, Bob Gaudio is such a straight-laced kind of like idealistic, and then eventually kind of egomaniac person, and to be with another like type A personality, like that's just gonna clash. Like there's no reason why they wouldn't clash in real life if they both have those personalities. And I, I'm assuming the personalities in general are the personalities of the actual people. And I think now that you mention it, I think that's one of the reasons why they removed that line. The, the original line to play how um, during Bob Gaudio's monologue, it's like, I think these guys, very dramatic. I think I'm one in a hundred Italian who's not into that drama. Yeah. I mean, but they did keep the line of the whole, like, I don't care about the neighborhood. I never returned to the neighborhood. I hate the neighborhood. I still love that line. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Because it's just, they, they did keep a little bit of the, the knowledge of, like, well, the, the other three guys were very proud. Oh, no, you know, Bellevue, Jersey, you know, that's our home. That's our turf. That's our... He's like, I hate that place. I never want to return to it. I, I, I got famous as young as possible, so I wouldn't have to go back there. I am from wherever I currently live. And in, in the movie version, he says he's currently in Tennessee. I don't know. He remember. also says that in the play. Is that like, the play version as well? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can find me in Tennessee. I'm on my boat with my wife, smoking a cigar. Yeah. I think it's kind of how Miguel wants to retire. <laughs> on a boat with his wife and smoking a cigar. Yeah, I, I I really like how um how um Eric Bergen played um Bob Gaudio in the movie. He pretty much plays it the same way as he does in the um on stage. Yeah, and, and it gives you the, the two aspects of the guy. The the young, bright eyed, oh my god, guys, let's be a band. And then the all our all our hits are because I wrote them. You guys would be nowhere if not for me. 
I'm the talent of the Spaniel. And you're like, well, he has a point there. All your hits were written by him. It's not like... It's not like, oh, we're not the Beatles. We're not all taking turns writing songs here. It's one dude writing the songs. I think you're going to get a bit of an ego. The one line that always annoyed me in the play and annoyed me in the movie as well, and I wish they'd changed or taken out, is a Nick Massey line where he says, you know, when you're in a band and you suddenly realize you're Ringo, that's when you know you got to get out. And I know Ringo is always the butt of the joke of the Beatles. Here's the thing about Ringo Starr. One, much like Bob Gaudio, he had an established career before joining the band. Two, he continued a career after leaving the band. And I know you could say the same thing about the other three members of the Beatles. And granted, two of them are now dead. But still, I still stand on like Ringo Starr being way more talented than he's ever given credit for. Three, he is actually one of the better rock and roll drummers, especially from that time period. Almost every drummer of that time period is nothing more than a glorified metronome. He actually uses complex rhythms in his drumming and uses a variety of other percussion instruments dependent on the song. Ringo Starr takes so much crap for absolutely no reason. The only thing I can think of is because of the Beatles, he was the least attractive <coughs> at the time. Now I think he's aged amazingly well, but at the time you had Pretty Boy John and Pretty Boy George and, and Paul, who was the funny one, so I guess he, he got away with not being quite as attractive. And then you said Ringo, who was just the drummer. You know, he basically got the, the BS that the bass player normally takes, which is, and you're the bass player, because you have no talent, you know? It was just like, you're the drummer, because, you know... Dude, March Simpson used to make paint portraits of Ringo Starr. And, and, and deservedly so, but the point is, he's not generally not considered the most attractive of the Beatles. Uh, I think probably in terms of, like, you know, wits in front of the microphone, he probably wasn't the strongest, but he was a good drummer. He's written a bunch of songs. He's had a great career, and yet somehow he's still the butt of every joke. And I'm like, that is musically inaccurate. How dare you? Um, and so I don't particularly like that line. But I, but in this in this movie, and as in the stage play, the character I feel the most sorry for throughout the majority of the story is Nick Massey, because all the crap he has to put up with and he's so stoic and I so quiet. I always love that scene. My other favorite scene in the show is the whole sit down with uh, at Jip DiCarlo's where Nick goes into his monologue and he just like just blows up right there. Yeah, it's every little thing that's driven him insane about the band and, and not just because of what they're dealing with Tommy but then afterwards he has his little kind of moment with Bob as well where he always feels that he, he just kind of has this third wheel kind of feeling or fifth wheel or however you want to put it. Um, he has this, this kind of feeling of like, I'm left out of like everything. No one cares about my opinion. No one ever lets me talk. And I'm like, it's true. You basically are the dude. Who, you're the bass player. And, and because you're the bass player, you draw the short straw on the, you know, on the band. And they also like that, that little moment where um, Bob Gaudio actually acknowledges him. Like once he leaves the band, it's like, yeah, Bob, thanks for noticing. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, because Bob was always just off with Frankie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tommy was just kind of dragging Nick around. It's just kind of what it looked like. And you feel really sorry for the guy because he's like, he took everything in stride because that's just his personality. And then suddenly just at a certain point could not take it anymore. And, and you know, it's just, 
I always felt sorry for him once, once uh, first ever since the first time I watched him, I'm like, yeah, man, that guy took, guy took way too much crap. And just. But what I have also would like to see about Nick Massey in this one is, I always um, pinned him as like the lovable, awkward one, because there's a scene in the um, play where he's trying to get um, Bob to buy a car, and then there's this line that he says where <laughs> it's it's, there's a line that's like, like, yeah, you know you want it, Bob. Those curves, that rear, or those headlights. Yeah, he basically uses the female metaphor for a car. Mm-hmm. Um, he does have, yeah, he does have his little moments like that in the play that, that weren't quite translated over to the screen. Um, and, and they didn't uh, keep the line about his death, which I love that line. <laughs> Died on Christmas Eve. Is that style for a Catholic or what? <laughs> um, but they did they did a good job with him. Um, I like kind of the fact that there's a sequence where they break into a church, not for nefarious reasons. They just break into the church, and, and he actually gets a couple extra lines I think in that one um, than he had in that. And you just kind of see a little bit more of 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 Nick's character in those in those earlier sequences. And, and I like him. And, and the thing is, we were listening to a clip uh, recording of, um, I don't know from when it was, but it was back when the whole band was was together. And they make reference to Nick Massey being the person who does their vocal arrangements. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he wasn't some, oh, you have the least talent, you're just a baritone, and, and here's a bass guitar. It was, he was the guy doing the vocal arrangements. So, you know, truthfully, he and... Bob Gaudio were probably the two most important members of that band because one guy made sure that they all kind of had a good harmony and rhythm going and the other guy wrote really good songs. And yes, I know people can go and say, well, yeah, but Frankie Valli was a talented singer. Yes, he was, but Bob and Nick could have found other talented singers and done some really good stuff. It's just that Bob never seemed to give two craps about Nick is, is the way it's, it's portrayed in the story. That, you know, he was like, Frankie Valli is my friend, and I could care less about the other two guys. And whoever our drummer is, is our drummer. It's just it's just some lounge lizard that we happen to pick up wherever we're at. Because the drummer, the name of the drummer, uh, or drummers, I'm not sure if it's different ones in different sequences, is never said in either version. There's just some drummer in the background. <laughs> um... So I assume they got a studio person or they got a lounge lizard to kind of take care of it. Uh, for those who don't know, that's a Vegas term usually, meaning uh, the house band, they're the lounge lizards. They're just, they're just dudes who are there to do that. Um, which is an amazingly lucrative gig, by the way. Don't go thinking that, oh, those losers, they can't make it anywhere. No, those people get to play for some of the best singers and get paid tons of money and usually they're just playing some rhythm background so Barbara Streisand or whomever they have that night can do her songs or his songs. And that's not a bad gig. Except for maybe the people who have to play for Celine Dion. That might suck. But like, you know, for the most part, it's kind of a cool gig. And very well paying. But I guess my point being is that, you know, one of the things that's really brought up, I think, really well in the stage play that is kind of toned down a bit in the movie is that each of these guys are horribly flawed people. No one is the good guy. They're all bad in their own ways. 
you know, be it Tommy being a little bit more of a criminal or Nick, you know, he also had a criminal background a little bit and became an alcoholic, something they barely even touch on in the movie. When I feel that it was like, you kind of hit over the head because you always see him with a drink in the, uh, in the play. Um, and, you know, Frankie being a bit of a womanizer, it's, it's touched on in like one sequence, real light, like two sequences. There's one where he's talking with a member of another band and kind of making a point like, hey, we all have our girlfriends. And then his wife, like, he says something to him at some point about it. But for the most part, that's all you really get on that front. And you don't get any of other Frankie's vices really brought to the forefront like you can in the, the stage. And the only one I think who they really kept very well, like they kept Tommy's kind of stuff intact and they kept Bob's ego intact and then some. Um, but, you know, Nick's alcoholism and Frankie's womanizing were very, very much pushed to the side to kind of make them both more sympathetic characters, which, which is fine, but it's just kind of one of those odd little things that I noticed. And I felt that like those character flaws are kind of what makes them more well-rounded and interesting characters. You know, if you always think of Frankie as just like this good guy who maybe got in with a bad crowd thing, mm, he was a Jersey criminal too, you know? They're all not so innocent in their own way. Yeah. And so I, I felt they toned that down for, for, for mostly Frank, Frankie and Nick. I thought their vices got toned down a little bit more. Um, but, but, Tommy and Bob were both kept fairly accurate I, uh, to the stage versions. I don't know what they were like in real life, but to the stage versions, they were kept very accurate in terms of their vices. Also, I noticed like um, you, you had like the three, well, you had Nick, Bob, and Tommy um, narrate their own sequences. When we get to Frankie's part, he's not even, even talking to the camera. It's just more focusing on him, if anything else. It's just, yeah, it's just a story. Um, because, yeah, there's certain, there's, uh, a sequence in the play where he actually narrates about this phone call he gets versus in the movie version, he's talking to other people and then he gets the phone call. And so it's just kind of like interrupts what he was talking about with other people. And he's like, oh, it's my daughter. I got to go and pick up the phone now. Um, versus in the, the play version where he narrates about the phone call and you don't even hear the phone call. You get, you get to hear the phone call or at least his reactions to the phone call in the uh in the the film version and yeah he doesn't really narrate his side of the story which is kind of odd because uh, the first three guys do like you mentioned but it's just kind of like the camera following him around you see him at these different points but he doesn't narrate it's just kind of explained via character dialogue it's just more like i just feel like he's more zeroed in on this because that's when you have like a more when it's much more focused when he and bob um partner up to like do their own thing and then you even have more scenes with um francine the daughter um on there too because yeah they, they you only see camera. like francine maybe once or twice in the stage play but it's, it's very brief but i felt like um, because you can like have different actresses, you can have like a younger actress play the younger fan scene. You can actually have those moments. You get a little on there too. A couple of cute. Uh, you get one cute father daughter moment where he's tucking her in for bed. You get a little moment where they're. I think actually that is. I thought that was from the original play where the Christmas sequence. No. No. Okay. I, I thought there was at least a scene where uh, Frankie's wife yells at Tommy about his language. Yeah. But and that then, was in Christmas. That's where we're just hanging out in, okay, at the place just for, to hang, record okay. sherry and stuff. Okay, yeah. So they, they did change that around a little bit. 
Um, but yes, you get to see his kids and multiple kids. I didn't realize. I keep forgetting he had like multiple kids because um, he did allude to it in the play, but you only see Francine. So that's something I usually forget because when I, at the end, right towards the end of My Eyes Adored You, I was like, wait, are these just Francine's friends just hanging out or something? Or like just cousins just hanging out? Because, you know. But I'm like, oh yeah, he did have more kids. They also changed the placement of that song, so it becomes a really cute acoustic kind of bedtime song for her. And then they play it again at a later scene, but it's not sung the way it is in the uh, stage play. But I, I thought they did a decent okay, job in, with that. Okay, um, in the stage version, when My Eyes Adore You is played, it's more of Frankie just singing to himself. It's your, it's your first time... Um, he's actually singing like one one of um, the actual songs like Four Seasons, but it's like done like as a monologue kind of thing. Yeah, it's 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 a very somber sequence. Mm -hmm. And then you have like the wife, um, also singing um, singing too. And then it just kind of fades in with the rest of the guys, and they're like they're on stage singing too. Yeah. And, and um, but it was changed, but I felt fine for what. Yeah, I was, what they I was did fine with, with that too. Like it was like a background image song, and also Francine's little lullaby. Yeah. And also the other, the scene where you hear it again, they actually you it was it was actually um fallen angel, um, which was cut from the movie. It's like okay, I guess they're just using it just to allude back to the other song. Yeah, but. they're alluding back to when he sang it as a lullaby. Mm -hmm. uh, versus, yeah, Fallen Angel, which is actually a really good song as well. Yeah, I made an AMV of it, but YouTube took it down. Hey, welcome to my world. Yay! Yeah, I, I did a Bleach yeah. AMV to that song. Now, now all you need is just be getting threats sent to you by Megamation. Um, Megatainment? Megatainment, excuse me. Megatainment uh, sending you uh, threatening letters, and then you have the full YouTube experience I've had. Awesome? Question mark? Yeah. Okay, so, but overall, I thought the actors in the, sh in the movie did a great job, and it was nice to see people who actually do have screen, who, who, can, who were part of stage production and that can act really well on screen, because usually, it's, most of the time, people who are used to stage can't really, I don't, I don't know, like, after... It's a different style of acting, is what it is. And so, sometimes stage people do not come off right on film, um, film people oftentimes do not come off right on stage, uh, so it, it works both ways. Because I know there's a handful of state, uh, film actors who've tried to jump onto stage and they usually get horribly, horribly, horribly panned. Uh, so it, it's just a very different style of of acting. You know, acting isn't just reading words and trying to make them sound like you're really saying them. There's certain things you have to do on stage that would look really ridiculous on camera. And there's things you have to do on camera that would look really ridiculous on stage or not even be noticeable on stage. So, you know, there, there's certain things that change. Um, and, and speaking of which, they, they really, this is one of those movies that just, it felt like a movie. It didn't feel like, oh, we have some, some sets and everything looks cardboard, uh, which is one of my gripes with the producers where everything freaking looks like cardboard and I hate it. And the pacing for this movie was really well. Like there were some decisions where I was like kind of question mark at like in the play when Bob gets laid for the first time, you're hearing him sing December 1963, which works well with that scene. And it actually explains the origin of that song. It, it's literally a song about him losing his virginity. <laughs> Which amazes me that he actually wrote that and decided that the band could perform that and it would become a big hit. And something I usually bring to karaoke at cons. Uh, 
so yeah, they they don't even associate that song with that, which uh, they do sing it at the end, and it's the only part that that's done you know, stage musical styles. They basically get the whole cast out, and they're basically singing that song and dancing and having a good time. And I liked it. And it was the start of the credits. And I felt that that kind of worked for the start of the credits and say, hey, this is a fun song that everyone knows and everyone loves. But we completely removed the context of what the song's about. And once you know what the song's about, if you hear the lyrics, you're like, oh my God, it's so blatantly obvious. But I never paid attention to the lyrics. Yeah, but I did like the little um, credit scene that they have there. With, like someone described it as like, "Oh yeah, the Bollywood scene at the end." That's an odd name for it, but it's basically a stage thing. It's the same thing that would happen on stage when, "Hey, the play's over, but we're all gonna like come out here and all sing the final song together because why the hell not?" Because mm-hmm. we're all talented singers and we're just gonna sing this and have a good time. And you see the whole cast come out. Like you see even Christopher Walken come out, and I thought that was cool. And you get to see like each of the guys just highlighted. And I just, I just thought that was just a really cool scene yeah. at the end. It's like, yay, feels. And, and, and the whole background and everything looks like a stage from a, uh, a theater production. I thought that was kind of a nice little nod with, and the movie, the story was already over, so we can have that as our little, you know, enhanced credit sequence. Um, for those who don't know, it is actually guild rules that you have to have uh, credits have to basically roll twice. If you wonder why they have to say every, you know, the actor names are almost always posted at the very beginning before the title, and then again in the rolling credits at the end. Uh, basically, the guild said you have to do that. So if you don't do your title opening credits, uh, usually they have to do something else. And you'll notice this in the Marvel movies do it a lot, so they can do some sort of cool flashy thing. Uh, the X Men movies tend to do it as well, so they can do some cool flashy. Uh, credit sequence there at the end, and then it's just the standard rolling credits. Well, for this, they did that, but they had it while they're singing, you know, uh, December 63, so. You know, and they started off with, with themselves under a street lamp. Yeah, as well. I noticed that as well, too, yeah. And and just kind of a fun way to end it. And then when we get to the proper rolling credits, it's the, uh, a couple, one or two songs they did. I know they did Sherry, and they think they did one other you know, it's like yeah, something in my mind right now, but I also um, thought it was interesting. They did the original versions uh, by the original band there for the rolling credits. I also thought it was interesting because I didn't know if you um, noticed this. Oh, yeah, you did notice this because you you actually made the comment in the theater where, like, you're at, in 1990 when it's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You can hear, oh, what a night, and that's the actual Frankie Valley version. Yeah. And then you made the comments, like, why was this here? Yeah. Um... It's not. I made the comment of like, why are they playing this now? And when it, and then when they did the dance sequence, my comment was, wouldn't it be nice if we actually knew the context of this song in this movie? I think that's the great thing about this movie. Like, you can enjoy this movie on its own in its own universe. Yeah. And you can also enjoy enjoy to play in its own universe. Like, I'm not saying like one is better than the other. Like, they they can be enjoyed on both levels. Well, is the thing is <laughs> it's called an adaptation. It means you're taking original material and you're you're making it fit a new media, and a medium rather. Um, and I think they did a good job with that. And it's not one of those things where oh, they completely changed the context, the relationship of these two characters, or they changed the ending, and in the end, the Phantom doesn't die. You know, uh, no, they, they end up, the story is still the story. There's a few contextual things about a few of the songs they don't explain, but whatever. You don't need to know what December 63 is about. You don't need to know, you know, the backgrounds of some of the other songs. And, and at the same time, they kept some of the sillier scenes in, like Walk Like a Man, where Tommy DeVito is confused as to, what, what as opposed to a woman? What? 
what what the heck is this song about? You know. And they By the way, I, I just love the actor they got for Bob Crew. I think he was in the original cast. It's the name escaping my mind again, but Bob Crew was a very flamboyant um, producer of the Four Seasons. The I, guy who brought them on. It was the early '60s. We we thought Liberace was just theatrical. And he plays it big on stage, but in the in the movie version, he plays it so subtle, but it's I mean, it's translated very dependent well. Dependent on the scene. There's some scenes where he's less subtle than others. Because we actually saw him um, in New York uh, right after New York Anime Fest. Oh, was it the same actor? For yeah, he was the same actor. Okay. And I saw, uh, yeah, I saw him twice, like when in December when I saw it. Um... Yeah, I saw in December, and then the following year, we went to New York Anime Fest, and that's when the sh- well, many you, shows you we saw. You have to see Jersey Boys if you're in New York, because Jersey's, like, right across the river. Oh, it is a fun show to see in New York, because they have, like, all the Jersey versus New York jokes in there, and the crowd just reacts them really well. Not only that, but it's, it's uh, for those who don't, haven't gone to a live performance in a while, or at all... At the, before every live performance, they usually have a sequence like, oh, please turn off your cell phones and, and you know, put your cameras away. You can take photos you know, of the actors afterwards, but not during the show. Um, one of the things they add into the Jersey Boys one is, and, and of course, in a, in a New Jersey accent, oh, yeah, and this play has authentic Jersey language. And if you've got a problem with that, you can leave now. You know, and I I'm don't like, think they do. I know there's like a lot of signs like in the theater says like warning this play contains authentic Jersey language. The guy said it. The guy's the guy when he's the whole like turn off your cell phones, turn off your cameras and all that other garbage. We don't want it ruining our show. Also this play has authentic Jersey language. And Was it when we were it, we were watching it with um in New York? Yeah, only the New York one's the only one that has that. Okay. Because the New Yorkers would get that. They would, they would understand what authentic Jersey language means versus if you're in, you know, Vegas, you'd just be like, what? What was, is because they have the accents? And it's like, no, it means every other word's an F-bomb <laughs> is what it means. And that's something they did tone down in this movie. They, they, they cut out a lot of the swearing, comparatively. It still has a good amount of swearing, but it's not the same as the stage production where just every other line, because they're... They're Jersey Boys. It's it's part of the vernacular. Especially for East Coast in general, I've noticed it's just part of the vernacular even now. Even in Boston, holy moly, people swear all the time in Boston. But yeah, I would say it's a it's an awesome movie. I had a lot of fun, but um I but um I've heard and I actually been looking at the box office figures as of 11:52 p.m. Um, June 21st, 2014. It's in fourth place in the box office. Sadly, well, it needs more love. Certain, but that's just me. Certain things you know are gonna just do better than it because um, of Tomorrow is still doing really well, and that's an action movie, so that, that has its own demographic. Um, um, it's actually lower than um, Jersey Boys right now. Um, oh. It's currently in the top. Um, Porridge. Top oh, four. right. Edge of Tomorrow hasn't been doing particularly well either. Um, one was Think reviews. Like a Man 2. Yeah. Um, How because, to Train Your Dragon. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, How to Train Your Dragon. That's the family thing. Family movies always get a big boost. True. But I, I just, I don't know. What's the, what's the, other, just, what's the third thing? Um, let me double check here. I got my, my source on Box Office uh, Mojo. Yeah, Think Like a Man 2. Like, that probably has some hunky dudes that some of the soccer moms are into or something, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. 22 Jump Street. Okay, well, so, so there's a comedy there, too. So you got a comedy, a family movie, and like a... 
I assuming chick flick kind of thing, or at least uh, like a magic mic kind of thing where it just has hunky dudes that chicks are into. Because I thought that was the, the cast of that was like all the hunky dudes that women are currently into. Yeah, and also how to train your dragons on like double the screens as Jersey Boys from the looks of this. Well, yeah, because it has a mass appeal versus a musical movie. So I think, how many screens does it say Jersey Boys is on? 2,905. And it's, that's, that's pretty good for, for 2,000 screens. If, to be fourth place, that's not too bad. That, that's nothing to be ashamed about. I, I, I don't, I wouldn't sit there and go like, oh, this movie tanked. I'd be like, hey, that's, that's really good for this musical movie. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of sad that Edge of Tomorrow could not make the ranks. I've heard it's really awesome. Yeah, I heard good things of Edge, Edge of Tomorrow as but well. But no one's seeing it because it's one of those movies that people look at and go like, oh, God, it's Tom Cruise playing Tom Cruise again. I actually do want to see it, but I've heard it's like something you got to see in the theater, so I'm just kind of debating. I can't imagine that. It seems like something that'd be fun for, like, I don't want to mean to call it my bad movie night because that's the general term, but I think, let's, let's go to the old school, Burritos and Cervezas night. Um, I think it would work really well. Like, you have your beer, enjoy Tom Cruise fighting aliens and Groundhog's Day uh, shenanigans. And uh, what's his face in it? Uh, from Aliens is in it. Um, Chet. Uh, the fridge is his name. Uh, Paxton. Bill Paxton is in it. As um, Army Dude. So he's basically playing the same character he played in uh, Weird Science and in um, Aliens. So... Game over, man. Game over. Sorry. I know, I get that those are like um, more the box office summer stuff. And, you know, Jersey Boys, I feel, is going to have like that niche market. When I was listening to Brad Jones's review on Jersey Boys, like, yeah, the theater was just mostly like old people who grew up in that era. Yeah. And they were the youngest people there. And I think we were also the youngest people in our theater, yeah, too. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. The people behind us didn't seem like they were our age. Like, the, the dude talking there. Yeah, I I, th- I don't know. I, I didn't bother to like look back. I didn't look back. Just the sound of his voice didn't sound like he was like an old man. Um, but yeah, I think there's. I think it has. I think it's also an, it's it's also an age thing too. There's an age thing, and it's a movie musical that doesn't have Baz Luhrmann like jizzing all over the screen. So I think if Baz Luhrmann jizzes all over the screen, the younger demographics into it. That's just what they want to be covered in. They want to be covered in Baz Luhrmann's jizz. That's why Great Gatsby had its weird love with all the younger audience, but no one else watched it because Great Gatsby is a piece of shit. Um, and that's why Moulin Rouge did so well, you know, because people love to be covered in Baz Luhrmann's jizz. The only movie of his I've ever enjoyed was Romeo and Juliet, because I may have had a Claire Danes crush in high school. Um, and a Leonardo DiCaprio crush, I'll be honest with that one. He does look kind of girly in that movie. Hey, I thought that was funny. And he has John friggin' Leguizamo as Tibalt. John Leguizamo is Tibalt. Of all the people to put as Tibalt, John Leguizamo. I'll just stick to Tromeo and Juliet, thank you very much. Oh, because authentic Jersey language? <laughs> well played. Well played. Well played. Hey, we can watch a movie done by the same guy. It's called Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> I'm fairly certain James, yeah, James Gunn did write Tremio and Juliet, so we can watch Slither, which I love, and Sergeant Kabuki Man, and we can watch Guardians of the Galaxy and Scooby-Doo, because they're all done by the same dude. 
I love you, James Gunn, in a very sexual way. Anyways, I, I totally recommend this movie if you really enjoy, like, biopics or just like to watch movies about, like, the music industry, because um, I know my godfather got me into, like, watching a lot of um, movies that are just based on, like, people in, in the music industry. And, and there's some good ones. I mean, you can go back, goodness, five... It's about seven years ago with Walk the Line. Yeah, well, there was Walk the Line. I loved Walk the Line. The one I, I, that my, um, I had to watch for um, when my... Um, I was I took a history of rock and roll class, and we had like extra credit movies that we had to do, and I remember watching um, the Temptations one, um, Why Do Fools Fall, Fall in, in Love? love yeah. That was a good one. Um, I actually liked The Runaways. I saw that randomly on cable, and I was like, this is better than I was expecting it to be. And even that that chick who can't act from Twilight is actually pretty decent in it, which blew me away. I was like, oh my god. Well, you, with you the can, right director and the right act. source. <laughs> Yeah, she can kind of act. Mm -hmm. um, for really weird that I don't think follows history at all, The Doors. But The Doors is such a weird acid trip of a movie. I don't think it follows history at all, but I think I think uh, Jim Morrison's ghost in Wayne's World 2 is a more accurate portrayal of Jim Morrison than, uh, than Val Kilmer's. But um, Val Kilmer does sing all the songs, and amazingly well, because he's actually a talented singer. And The Doors is just so insane that it kind of is fun on its own weird level. Yeah, and in terms of like um, movies based off Broadway shows, it's a it's a really decent adaptation, and I feel like if you you enjoy the stage musical, um, you won't be disappointed. Just keep yourself an open mind and just know that they are going to change and cut a few things, but you always know that the play will always be there for you. If you love the musical, you won't be disappointed. If you've never seen the musical. I think you'll really enjoy yourself because it's just, if you ever listened to, I don't know what the oldies stations are for wherever you're listening to this from, but I'm from Southern California, so we had two. K we had Earth 101, Cola 99.9. Exactly. So, and I love how the fact that they're that close on the dial. They, they're, they're super close on the dial, but you know these songs. You might not know every single one. Like, I don't think I've ever heard Ragdoll until I actually heard it in Jersey Boys. But, you know, you know all these hits. You know Walk Like a Man. You know Big Girls Don't Cry. You know Sherry. You know, um... Working my, my Way Back, back to, to you. you. Yeah, you know, Working My Way Back to You. You know, uh, you know, oh, uh, December 63. You know... All, all the big songs. Uh, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, of course. Everyone knows that. Uh, and the many J-pop covers I have of that. <laughs> really? Tommy, February 6th. And I... Oh, my God. Uh-oh. I, I think the one thing I... There's an Idol Master cover of it. Of Can't Take My Eyes Off of You? I'm not surprised that Japan has all these covers of Can't Take My Eyes Who Off of You. they get to sing it? We will find that. Find out. I, I'm curious. That will be your end theme. We we gotta have that be the end theme. If if it's because I remember I was like looking for um can't take my eyes off of you like on YouTube like several years ago. This was way before I got into Idol Master. And then like oh wait Idol Master too can't take my eyes off of you. I'm I'm curious. Okay. And, and by the way, this is just the songs from that group. This is excluding the various things they, they kind of cover, which is more of a thing for the stage musical than it is for the, uh, for the, play, for the uh, 
the movie. But if you love the music of that era, I highly recommend checking out the play. Even if you're not into plays, this is a good one to start start off with, and this is a safe one to take um, to check out. And for you know a kind of a, a band bio movie, it does does very good job. There's a lot of witty dialogue, a lot of funny one-liners. Even though you know, like I said, I can I can complain about stuff from the from the play being taken out. It's not like oh they took out every good line. It's like oh there was this nice little moment where I think it's Frankie Valley uh, has his line about you know this too shall pass, which I thought was like one of my favorite like bits in his monologue, and I was quite surprised they t- took that away because I always thought like that was like a huge theme of Jersey Boys. Like everything is temporary. Temporary. Um, the um, the good will happen. The bad will happen. These things will. Pass. Yeah. And I think he says it originally in the uh, original Italian phrase for it. A passa de nutata, I think. I it, forgot. It's something like that, yeah. He's like, my mama always said, and then says it in the Italian, and then goes, this too shall pass. And it does feel like that was kind of one of those uh, deeper themes to the whole story, which is, yeah, the good things will pass, but also the bad things will pass. And it, it's one of those kind of little things like that. And uh, you know, a couple other fun one-liners that were taken out, but for the most part, it's not like you would be missing anything. It just will make the theater experience a little bit different. That is to say, the movie theater experience and the stage theater experience will be a little bit different, a couple different lines, but there's plenty of things they kept in there that are just great little one-liners, and because the actors, because of the actors they chose, most of those lines came out well. There's one line that I kind of like the uh, uh, of Bob Cruz, one of Bob Cruz's lines that I prefer the version done by the Vegas actor to uh, any of the other versions I've heard, um, including this movie version. But it's just, just it's just kind of playing up the uh, flamboyantness of the character and how he pronounces a word, and um, it's just a personal taste thing. But for the most part, I think they did did a great. Did a really great job with it. They adapted it really well. Clint Eastwood did a pretty good job keeping things looking authentic, which I think is kind of the trick to make this work. You know, when they're at the the, the Ohio State Fair, it looks like what you would imagine the 1960s Ohio State Fair to look like, early 60s Ohio State Fair to look like. It's, you know, when they're just doing their initial, we're doing the state fairs because we're not big enough to sell out a, uh, uh, a stadium. Um... One of the sequences I actually do really like from the stage, just because of how vi- how it looks visually, which they did not do in the movie, is there is a sequence where they do sell out a stadium, and the way they move the curtains and stuff in the back, you just it you're as if you're standing behind the band, looking out to what an audience in a giant stadium looks like, um, and visually it's just something really cool that they did. I think that's the Vegas version that has that, and I think the New York one does as well. And I actually really like that. I can't remember where they're performing, but they make a reference to where they're performing and they're all like, yeah, let's do this. And then the curtain rises and they start playing and that leads us to the intermission. And it's really kind of a cool uh, moment there, which they didn't quite, they didn't do that at all. In the, but like I said, it, it's a different experience, but the, ad, but the performances are great. Uh, a lot of the good lines are still there. The music is well done. Um, and it's a really good story. It's an interesting story about a very, very important band in American music history, uh, who probably doesn't get as much like love as they probably should. 
considering the insane amount of hits they actually had. And their longevity, because they were playing in the, the early, the late 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and Frankie Valli still occasionally will do tours, or, or is he situated somewhere? I can't remember if he's situated somewhere or if he's touring. Because I remember seeing a thing about it, like, a couple years back. Because I thought he was touring, uh, doing like a little. Because I know he's. Tour a couple years I, I still he, he I still know that he's on tour. Because one of my greatest, um, my, my greatest regrets when I went to San Diego Comic Con was Frankie Valli was playing right down the street. Ah. I was so close to seeing him live. So close. Which so would far be away. a really cool experience. I know, missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I also want to see like there's there's also like these um, these actors who are involved with the with the play. They have like their own alumni bands. Um, there's the Midtown Men. There's Under the Street Lamp, and I've been wanting to see them live, um, but it's so hard to catch them because some of them some of them like Under the Street Lamp are very local to their to their that, area. That one's Chicago, right? Yeah, that's Chicago based, but they've been on tour and they've done like those PBS doo-wop specials. Oh, you know, like those telethons you see. Yeah, I know. I know. PB how PBS works. But yeah, I, I thought I thought it was great. And um, Jared, do you have any final thoughts? You know what? If you're tired of every summer movie being explosions or really stupid comedies, you know this this is actually a nice this is this is this is the bre- this is the sorbet of the summer season. It is. It just will completely cleanse your palate. You'll feel like, hey, that was actually good to go to. I'm tired of everything has to be some over-the-top explosion or some stupid comedy. Or Next week we get Transformers. I'm not watching that. Neither am I. Um, I don't care what anyone says. It has dumbass Dinobots, which I hated in the cartoon, and I still hate to this day. And it has Mark Wahlberg, who has two modes. Really good actor, terrible actor. I'm Mark Wahlberg. I'm going to talk to robots now. Hey, Optimus, you're a robot. What's that like? Like the color of your paint. Say hi to your motherboard for me. Yeah. I imagine that's what the whole movie's gonna be like. Well, that trailer, that every trailer I see, his performance is like, I think we found a Transformer. This is what I sound like when I'm surprised, shocked, or amazed by something. And I'm like, yeah, you're doing Mark Wahlberg can't act mode. I'm just going to go back and rewatch the big hit and actually have a smile on my face when I watch one of your movies. Or I'll watch Three Kings or something where you actually put out a good performance. By the way, for good Mark Wahlberg movies, highly recommend Three Kings and Big Hit. I love Three Kings. Three Kings is so friggin' underrated. There's tons of terrible Mark Wahlberg movies, folks. I don't even have to give you the listings on those ones for a bad movie night. Just It's called his IMDb. Just pick three randomly. All right, so Jared, now that, um, <clears throat> would you like to sign us off? Okay. Well, uh, until next time, and that next time will be coming up very soon. We have plenty of stuff coming up, and hopefully a future cool little project that we'll pull off come this fall. And definitely check out our E3 reviews. Our E3 reviews, yeah, are, are up for, uh, for uh, <sighs> Secret Stage. Sorry, can't talk here at the end. And we're also going to be hitting up Kineticon and possibly Boston Comic Con this summer. So if you just want to say hi to us and chit chat with us, we could use some friends. Yeah, we're not going to have any panels at those cons, but we're always around. And so keep 
keep tabs on our Twitter and etc. And our Twitter is at Scarlet Rhapsody if you like to follow our general Twitter. But if you want to just... Uh, One word, no hyphens. Yep. And if you just want to follow me on my personal Twitter, it's at Eri Kagami, E-R-I-K-A-G-A-M-I. And I usually just tweet about Broadway stuff there. And you can also read some of my Broadway reviews on Dancing Through Life on Scarlet Rhapsody. And you can, I guess you can find me on Facebook as Mr. 714. So have fun with that if you guys want. And until next time, this is Jared for Scarlet saying, keep it bizarre because it's hip to be square.